So, uh, as you know, if you've been around for a while, or even if you're not, uh, you already know this if you've been around. If you haven't been around, I'm going to tell you, we're going through the book of Acts together, and uh, we've been in the book of Acts for, for quite a while, which is fine, um, but uh, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. There's some back on the table back there beside the door if you need to borrow one. Uh, you don't even have to borrow one. You could actually take that and keep it if you'd like. Um, if you do borrow one, we're going to be on page 543. And uh, Acts 23, the entire chapter was the reading plan for this week. And as Gretchen said, as it was the reading plan, that means it's the basis for our talk today, um, as it always is. That, that relationship between the reading plan and the Sunday talk is always established that way. And uh, in Acts 23 here, our, uh, the passage tonight is really uh, a story within a story, or it's, it's really the, the middle part of a larger story. And uh, as you're turning to Acts chapter 23, um, let me bring you up to speed on sort of where we're at in the midst of this story. So as we've been going through the book of Acts together, we've seen how the Apostle Paul was bound and determined to get to Jerusalem. In our previous weeks, going back months, we see how Paul kept bringing it up. It was something that he desperately wanted to do. And he finally gets to Jerusalem. He hangs out with the leaders of the church for a little bit. And then uh, just within a week's time, it's not very long, Within a week, there's trouble. Paul's in the temple, and there's some haters there who see him. They had seen him with someone, they had, they had seen him with someone in this city, and they had made the assumption that Paul had brought this person into the temple, which was unlawful for him to do, because this other person was not a Jewish person. And so in doing that, they're accusing him of defiling the temple. And so they freak out, they turn on him, they drag him out of the temple into the street, and they're beating him up, and their desire is to kill him. And Paul basically had to be rescued by the cops. There's this big uproar. The Roman officer in charge, uh, we know him. The text will reveal him as the tribune, um, or his name was Claudius Lysias. Claudius Lysias, he sent some soldiers in to save Paul's butt, basically. And Claudius asked the mob who Paul is, what's going on, why are you so upset at him? Uh, what has he done? What, what is happening here? And of course, the frenzied mob is no help. All they want is a piece of Paul, and they want to kill him. And so Claudius Lysias orders Paul, uh, for his own safety and for his own protection, be taken back to the barracks. And the crowd is so crazy that the soldiers have to carry him there. And when they arrive back at the barracks, Paul asks uh, the tribune if he may address the crowd. And Claudius says, okay, sure, yeah, you can address the crowd. And so Paul does that. And as he begins to address the crowd, the, the, uh, the, uh, the crowd starts to calm down. And Paul gets into sharing his story of how he had become a follower of Jesus. And as he does that, suddenly the crowd just erupts again. And so the tribune, Claudius, orders that Paul be taken inside the barracks. Now, Claudius doesn't have a clue of what's going on at all. And so he resorts to, uh, to plan B. He'd already asked them what's going on, couldn't make any sense of it. And he had to rescue Paul, so now he resorts to plan B. And now that Paul's in the barracks, he decides, okay, let's flog this guy. Let's beat him until he admits to his crimes. And that seemed like a really great plan until Claudius figures out that Paul is a Roman citizen. 
And as a Roman citizen, he has certain rights, and the law did not allow for a Roman citizen to be flogged. So, of course, that wasn't going to work out very well. So the tribune is, is still trying to figure out who's on first, who's on second. So he has the bright idea of calling for a meeting of the Sanhedrin. This was the, the Jewish court. And so this, that's a little bit of the backstory, and this is now where we pick up the story. We're actually, I mentioned we're going to be in Acts chapter 23, but we're actually going to start at the last verse of the previous chapter, so Acts 22 and verse 30. But on the next day, speaking of, uh, of Claudius here, the tribune, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, that being Paul, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. So basically what Paul is doing here, he's making a case already that this whole meeting is unnecessary and completely ridiculous. Because he's saying, why am I on trial? I've lived my life before God in all con- in all." Uh, good conscience up to to this day. In verse 2, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? So, of course, we see here Paul's talking a little sass to the high priest. (laughs) And in reference to the, to, to the whitewashed wall, so we understand this reference, the Jewish people would whitewash their tombs. On the outside, the tombs would look, would look decent, but of course, on the inside of these tombs, they would contain decla- decaying and rotting flesh. And Paul is using this reference and this metaphor, much like Jesus did, to call out hypocrisy. What looks good on the outside is not so, is not so much what we find on the inside. And so that's the level of sass and accusation here that Paul is using to the high priest. And it also reminds me of, and you guys know this line. If you don't know, if you don't know the movie, you know the line, but it's from the 1979 movie and Justice for All. I don't know if some of you know where I'm going with this. Where, where it's, where it's, this it's this famous scene where Al Pacino, playing a lawyer, a lawyer, is screaming at the judge, and he says, you're out of order. This whole trial is out of order. And that's sort of what Paul is saying here. And let's look at verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And now when Paul perceived that one part of the Sanhedrin, of the council, when he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So Paul throws them in bringing up the resurrection of the dead. Paul throws them into this predictable frenzy when he brings this up. 
The Sadducees did not believe in anything supernatural, but, the, but of course, the, the Pharisees did. So it would have, it would have been similar to uh, uh, an argument or a fight in the middle of Congress about something that's very divisive, a divisive issue. It might be immigration or the Second Amendment or something crazy like that. The fight that ensued was very predictable, and Paul apparently set them up for this. He knew it would divide them. So I don't know if it's a ploy to get the focus off of him. I don't know if it was his desire to turn them against one another or an attempt to manipulate the Pharisees to back him and to take his side. But clearly we see in the text that he brought this up after noticing the, the division uh, of the representatives in the room, the difference and, and the diversity of representatives, the two sides in the room. And we see that things escalated very quickly. Verse 10, when the dissension became violent, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded his soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so once again, Claudius, the tribune, has to send his soldiers in to extract Paul and place him in protective custody. And, I, and I'm sure Claudius is not loving life at this point and not really loving Paul very much. And I'm sure he's getting over it a little bit at this point. But apparently, so was Paul. And if we look at the text, we can make some reasonable assumptions by what we see taking place here that Paul wasn't in that great of a spot either because we see the Lord now minister to Paul in the most incredible way. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Interesting. Now, I'm going to come back to this. I'm going to circle back to this in a little bit. Uh, and we'll see what's going on here. We'll take a, a little bit closer look. But for now, let's continue on with the story. Verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So these guys were relentless. So far, their attempts to take him out have been fruitless. So, so far, everything that they've done has been unsuccessful. So now they hatch this new plan, and they're obviously, as they make this crazy oath, they're being rather dramatic about it. We're not going to eat or drink until we successfully snuff them out. And considering Paul was just one man, was it really going to take over 40 men to get the job done? Possibly, yes, and here's why. Because to get to Paul, these guys would have to get through the Roman soldiers that protected him. These Roman soldiers that had a duty to protect him. So it wasn't just 40 against one. It would have been 40 against, I'm not sure how many, but the Roman soldiers had this duty to protect him, and so they would have to get through those soldiers. And so that's why there's so many of them. And so they come up with this elaborate plan. Check out verse 14. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune 
to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So the situation is not looking good at all. And things are getting crazy because now they've hatched this conspiracy. They're conspiring with the, the leaders. And this is a way that we can get him. But then randomly, this person that's never been spoken of before, and this person that's never been spoken of again comes into the picture. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Who knew that Paul had a nephew? (laughs) Apparently he did. And just somehow he finds out about this plot. You know what they say, loose lips sink ships. Verse 17, so Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. Take him to Claudius, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and he pulls him aside. Going aside, he asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. So they're pretty motivated. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Now, is it just me, or is this starting to sound like a certain HBO medieval fantasy series that shall remain nameless? Verse 23, then he called to the centurions and said, get ready, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to to Felix, the governor. So in response to this latest uh, turn of events, the tribune has had enough. And so he makes preparations for 470 of his men, about half of all of his troops, to escort Paul to the governor in Caesarea. Why so many soldiers? Well, just like these men that were part of the conspiracy needed 40 to take out one, now Claudius is recognizing and utilizing the same logic that a threat to Paul is a threat to them. And so Claudius rallies about half of all the soldiers under under his command to provide this escort for Paul. And what the Tribune did was what an old teacher of mine called passing the monkey. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that. What this means is it's when you're able to successfully take the monkey off your back and place it on the back of somebody else further up the chain of command. So that's what he's doing here. He said, this is not my problem anymore. Hey, Felix, take the monkey. Here you go. And so while his men are preparing to move out, 
Claudius, the tribune, writes a letter to the governor to explain why he's receiving this wonderful care package. And he wrote a letter to this effect in verse 25, and we see in verse 26, Claudius Lysias, he's identifying himself, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, and he basically tells him the story, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, we know that that's not exactly how the story went, but whatever. Conveniently left out the part about how he almost beat a Roman citizen to a pulp, left that part out, made himself look good here. Verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. And I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So there's some vindication here for Paul. Claudius Lysias, the tribune, he's been involved in this a little bit here. He's found no fault in Paul. Clearly, the Jewish community has a problem with some sort of perception of violation of their law. And Claudius is like, I don't understand what the problem is, but now it's your problem, Felix. And so there was some vindication for him here. In verse 35, and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And this was about halfway there, halfway to Caesarea. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. He wanted to make sure he was within his jurisdiction. He's probably looking for a way out of this, a way to weasel out. And when he learned that he was from uh, Cilicia, which was within his jurisdiction, he says, okay, I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So that is some crazy stuff right there. Now, let's remember that Paul, for years, as I mentioned earlier from our previous studies, Paul has wanted to go to Jerusalem. But I'm not so sure that this is what Paul had in mind. And we can assume from um, the passage here, like I mentioned, that he was feeling defeated and and discouraged, and the the Lord ministers to him here. And, and, And maybe even Paul, the way he was feeling discouraged and the way that he was feeling defeated and, and down was not just for the way that this persecution was affecting him, but possibly also for the ways that it was interfering and hindering him in his ministry. Now, at first glance, we could regard this passage as an account of Paul's experience in Jerusalem. But as we've discussed several times over the last few months, we should always do our best to see how Scripture reveals God and how this story is really about God. So we can sort of look at Paul, kind of push him aside and put him on the shelf a little bit and sort of look a little bit deeper to see what God is doing and how the Scriptures reveal God in this passage. And now that we understand the broader context, 
of these difficult and trying times that, 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 and these difficult circumstances that Paul has been going through, the full context of that, what I want to do now is I want to circle back to verse 11. So turn back to verse 11. And I want, to, I want us to see three things that in the midst of all that is going on, three things that the Lord gives Paul. The first thing that we see that the Lord gives is his presence. We see here from our text that the Lord showed up, quite literally. It says there in verse 11, the first part, the following night, the Lord stood by him. What an incredible thing. How amazing is that, that the Lord, that this is recorded for us, that the Lord stood by him. That God would be so gracious to provide him with his visitation. And when we go through challenging and trying times, there's nothing that can compare to an awareness of his presence. I remember going through, um, um, some of you know my issues, uh, my health issues that I've had, but it was a handful of years ago, uh, actually not that long ago, but I was was experiencing a lot of nerve pain and I was um, in a a wheelchair just to be able to get around because it was too hard to walk. And it was right around Christmas time and, and, I, and I was, it was just a few days before Christmas, and I, I wanted to go to the church service celebrating Christmas. And so I went that night, and I was, when the service was dismissed, people are filing out, and because I was in a wheelchair, I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out through the crowd. So I'm waiting, and someone knew what was going on with me, and they walked up to me, and they said, how you doing? And they expressed their concern. And I told them, not good, But I remember telling them, because this is all I could think of at the time, the Lord is near. And that was such a helpful thing for me to be able to cling to, that my circumstances aren't great, and I'm under a lot of pain right now, and I'm in this wheelchair just to try to get around, but the Lord is near. And just imagine, in the midst of all that is going on here with Paul, just imagine how reassuring this must have been for Paul. In the midst of all this, he apparently needs to be um, uh, encouraged by the Lord in this way. And so it must have just been so good for his soul that the Lord would come and stand by him. And just knowing that Jesus was there, even before he lifted a finger or uttered a single word out of his mouth, just knowing his presence, I'm sure that must have been so amazing for Paul. The passage actually indicates that Jesus physically stood by Paul. And while this particular manifestation is amazing, uh, it's def- it definitely isn't typical. And so don't be bummed if tonight, you know, Jesus doesn't hang out and like stand by you and chit chat. Uh, it's definitely not typical. It's a special circumstance, but not typical. But, but in spite of that, it's okay because God still promises to be near his people. God promises his nearness to us, period, without exception. Now, how his presence manifests in our lives is almost irrelevant if we're just wrestling through, is he near or is he not? As it relates to that question, how the presence of God is manifested 
and it can be a variety of ways, but how is quite irrelevant when all we're looking at is the question of, is he here or not? Because there's definitely those times in our lives, right, where we feel like God is far off, and we feel like God is detached from us, and we see the psalmist recorded in Scripture wrestling through some of this. But God has promised to be near. And if the Lord had not manifested his presence like this, would he have been any less present? I don't think so. This is just the way he chose to manifest his presence with Paul in this moment. The legitimacy of God's presence is not contingent upon how it manifests just, and this is important, just as it's not contingent upon how we feel about it or how much we believe it to be true. Sometimes we look for a particular manifestation. Lord, I need you to show up in my life like this, in this way, in this form. But the reality of his presence isn't contingent upon taking on any particular form or working in our lives in any particular way. And the reality and the legitimacy of his presence is not also contingent upon how we feel about it. Meaning, you might feel like God is far off, but you're wrong. We are wrong. We all do it. We all go through those moments. We have those seasons. It's also not contingent upon whether we believe it or not. Well, you know, that's nice, Pastor Lorenzo, but I don't really believe that God loves me enough to be close to me like that, to be near me and to come near me and to, and, and to be that close to me. Doesn't matter if you don't believe that or not. I want you to believe it, but it doesn't change the theological reality of it because that's exactly what it is. It's a theological reality that does not seek our approval and does not check in with us first to see how we feel about it or whether we believe it or not. For the believer, the nearness of God is not a maybe. For the believer, the nearness of God is an absolute certainty. And that doesn't always mean that we're going to see it that way. And we can struggle with that. Old school... British preacher G. Campbell Morgan said this amazing quote, all our fear and all our panic result from a dimmed version, uh, sorry, not version, although we create a version as well that often lets us down, side note. But let me start over. All our fear and all our panic result from a dimmed vision of the Lord, a dimmed consciousness of Christ. And then he says, I believe that is the trouble with us all today. And I couldn't agree with him more. This is becoming, well, to say epidemic might be a little dramatic. But more and more and more, I am seeing this become a very real problem in, Christian, in, the, in the Christian community, just at large our view of God and our, and our understanding of God and his presence and a consciousness of him is dimming. And notice, 
as he appears here with Paul. The Lord doesn't pat Paul on the head and tell him he's a champion and a son of the king. He didn't whisper into his ear, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans that I have for you. Or Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. What a missed opportunity, right? Because wouldn't we all do that with somebody else? But what we see him doing here, this other thing that we see him, in addition to giving him his presence and providing his presence, the second thing we see him doing is giving a command. Again, continuing on in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, the promise of his presence, and said, here's the command, take courage. So he's not merely trying to lift Paul's spirits. He's not just merely trying to make him feel better. When we look at this, and I don't want to get all like intellectual and weird about it, but uh, according to the Greek, the original language that this was written in, we see that this was actually a command. Now, it wasn't a overbearing uh, or heavy-handed command, but it was a command nonetheless. He's saying, take courage, as in do it, as in take it. And it's funny, I could have looked the etymology of this up, I guess, but when you think about the word encourage, I don't know, you guys can connect the dots if you want. I don't, I, I don't, even know, I don't know what that means, but obviously the word encourage comes from the word courage, and maybe en means make, or I don't know, whatever. You guys can look it up later. But that's what he says to him. Take courage, and it's a, com- it's a command. And I'll explain the significance of this in a little bit, but before I do, I want to point out the third thing that, that uh, we see him give Paul, because these, these things are related. The third thing we see him give him is a promise. So first we see him uh, give him his presence, and then we see him uh, give him a command, and now we see him give Paul a promise. Verse 11 again, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And so he's saying, you're going to make it out of here. With all this craziness that's going on, you're not going to die here. I'm going to be with you. I'm still going to work in your life. I still have plans for you. Very Jeremiah 29, 11-ish, I guess, right? And I still want to use you. So in this incredible moment, God has this uh, to say to Paul. I need you to do this. That's the take courage part. And I need you to believe that I'm going to do this for you. So he's saying, I need you to do this, but I also need you to believe that I'm going to do this. It's the command and the promise. If God's part is commanding, then our part is obeying. If God's part is promising, then our part is trusting. And what I think this verse gives us and what I think this verse offers us is a path to having the right perspective when we're facing difficult and trying times. 
I'm talking about knowing that he is present. He desires our obedience in these moments. And in these moments, he offers us promises. So practically speaking, what does this look like? I'm suggesting that in these moments, when we find ourselves in difficult and trying times, in hardship, in affliction, in, and when, when, when we're facing adversity, I'm suggesting that we can ask ourselves just a few questions and the answers to these questions will provide for us much needed perspective. And what if we made this a practice in our lives? Questions like this. I'm in this situation, it really sucks right now, and it's a horrible time I'm going through, it's very difficult, I can't make sense, I'm so confused. Okay, what has God already revealed about his presence? Question number one. What has God already revealed to me about his presence? And when I say revealed to me, I'm not talking about you know, some private you know, email from God. What I'm talking about, how he's revealed these things in scripture. What has God already revealed about his presence? And the second question can be, in this situation, what does God want me to do? Or what does obedience look like in this moment? The first question reminds us about his presence. The second question helps us to consider what obedience looks like. The third question is, what has he already promised that he will do? Now, in the situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in, we've got to fill in those blanks. But in order to gain much-needed perspective, I think these are the questions that, that we can ask for the sake of clarity and to get our perspective back right where it needs to be so that we don't draw wrong conclusions about what God is doing in our circumstances, what he's doing in our lives, and how we are to respond. It's going to keep us on the straight and narrow. It's going to hold us accountable to sinful thoughts, to, uh, to, to thoughts about God that are wrong, that may be understandable, but still wrong, still in error. We'll find comfort in answering these questions by, because we're going to know that he's promised his presence to us, things like that. If we've been following Jesus for a while and you have a, if, you, if we have a decent knowledge and understanding of the Bible, uh, coming up with answers to these questions, it would be pretty simple and we'll likely have them right away. But if we aren't able to or if we're even newer to the Christian faith, that's why discipleship is so important. Discipleship is us connecting with one another. We've referred to it as one anothering where, we're, where we are encouraging one another in Jesus, in our relationship with Jesus. Sometimes I like to refer to it as to know, love, and live for Jesus. We're, we're involved in one another's lives in this way that we're pushing one another to a deeper relationship with Jesus, a deeper understanding of how God desires to work in our lives. And when we fall short, that is the point of discipleship in community. We can be there for one another so that when we're falling short in drawing conclusions and understanding what God is, is doing, our loving brothers and sisters can come ar around us and they can surround us and they can comfort us and they can bring much needed perspective and share God's loving and gracious truths with us so that we can be comforted and encouraged 
in this Christian life and through the things that we are experiencing. Acknowledging God's presence, his commands, and his promises will guide our hearts and our minds towards comfort, towards obedience, and greater trust. This is the path to perspective in the face of adversity. God's presence, his commands, his promises do not only provide this path, but they also provide a framework for understanding the gospel when you think about it. A framework for understanding the gospel. Check this out. The gospel, as it relates to his nearness, the most beautiful demonstration of the nearness of God is seen in the incarnation. This is when God sent his son into this world. He left heaven and came close. He left heaven and came near. He became a man and he lived among us just to die for us so that we could be brought even nearer because it's in his death that the the means for the forgiveness of our sins has been purchased because here's the problem. Our sins, they separate us from God. But when we place our faith in Jesus and accept that that our sins are only forgiven through this incredible act of love of Jesus on the cross, our sins can be forgiven. And he goes as far as to adopt us into his family. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again because I, I think this is an important key in understanding this. Jesus didn't, he didn't just do us a favor by dying on the cross for us because he was so merciful and so gracious And it's like, okay, guys, I'll tell you what, you know, boom, you're forgiven. You get to go to heaven one day. He did all that. He worked in our lives in incredible ways in what he accomplished on the cross. But more than that, he took it one step further. He dealt with our sins so that we could be forgiven. He took our sins upon himself in this gruesome act of him dying on the cross. But then he says, more than that, I want you to be close to me. And this is where God decides to adopt us. We are adopted. I don't think that unless adoption is a part of our life story, whether we've been adopted or we have adopted children, we have families in our church that have done so, I don't know that we'll ever really comprehend how amazing and beautiful this is. That God said, I want you, I choose you, you are mine, and not just as a possession, but as, a, as family. That's what makes us, for those that have placed their faith in Jesus, that's what makes us brothers and sisters. That's why we are family, and that's why we should act like it. This beautiful picture of adoption powerfully demonstrates God and his desire to be near to us. Secondly, in understanding and seeing these things as a framework for understanding the gospel, the gospel and his commands. 
We all know that God calls us to live for him. Christianity gets cheap shot at all the time for, you know, I don't want, I'm not into rules and regulations and all these things that I have to do all the time. But that's an inaccurate review, or review? Yeah, I guess it could be a review. It's a bad review. It's a wrong review. But it's an inaccurate view of the life that God is calling us to live. Because when we see what, everything I just mentioned, of the nearness of God, what he's done in the gospel to bring us close to him, when we see what he's done to bring us close, it motivates us to respond to him in such a way that we want to give him our lives completely. You see, this relationship that we have with God is not one of forced servitude. We don't have a gun to our heads. We're talking about responding to the love that he has for us, where we recognize the demonstrated love of God and we even picture in our own minds Jesus dying on the cross for us, and our hearts respond to that. And, so, and we recognize what he has done for us, and, and now we regard it as our pleasure and our privilege to be able to serve him and obey him. The gospel completely changes our understanding of this. It's not just, we've not just been handed down this detached list of rules that we have to follow. But we see what he's done for us and we respond in love back to him because we see his love demonstrated to us. So even when it comes to obeying him and overcoming maybe some sinful struggles that we have in our lives, the key to overcoming sin is not to hate sin more. And you know that's true if you've tried that. The key to overcoming sin is to understand the gospel. It's to love him more. When we love God more in response to his love for us, when we really see his love for us and that stirs up within our hearts a response of love back to him, it's like turning on a light in a dark room. The darkness doesn't have to think about it. The darkness doesn't even have to be hated. You don't even have to pay attention to the darkness. You flip that switch. The light comes into the room and it chases out the darkness. That's how it works with us. The way we respond to God in loving him more naturally switches our affections for the things that are not of God to the things that are of of God and our passions and our desires are renewed and exchanged for something much more purified, much more holy. And, and, and our desire for sin and the things that entice us tend to subside. Also, if we look at this as a framework and we see the gospel as it relates to his promises, there are obviously, I mean, there are way too many to get into. There, we don't have time to list all of them. But just to name a few, and I'm sure many of you could make this list longer for me, but just to name a few, when we place our faith in him, just looking at some of his promises, he promises to forgive our sins. We've already sort of established that. That means our sins can no longer separate us from him and his holiness. He also uh, promised to make us new creations where we don't have to keep on living the way that we were. He makes us new. He makes us new. He also promised to give us the Holy Spirit that would empower us and enable us to live lives that please him. And he promises to never leave us. We've established that as well just before he ascended back into heaven, 
He said, I will be with you always. A couple weeks ago, maybe it was a week ago, not that it matters, um, I was reading the Bible. No, I wasn't. My daughter was. My daughter was reading me the Bible, and she came across this story of Jesus making this promise where he says, I'll, I will, um, I'm, he says, I'm with you always. But it's sort of in the context of him going back to heaven. And she slammed the Bible closed. She's like, wait, if he's going back to heaven, how is he always going to be with us? But we know, again, we've already established that the way his presence is manifested does not make his presence any less legitimate. And so we have this promise that he will always be with us. God's presence, knowing that he's with us, knowing that is near, that he is near, his commands, us exploring what obedience looks like, and his promises that we put our trust in. This is the way I would suggest that we gain much-needed perspective when we go through difficult times. And if you know Jesus, you have all of this. You have his presence. You can be sure of that, that he is with you. You understand the life that he's calling you to. You have these promises. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't. And I would ask that we all consider the implications of these things. Let's pray.